Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John. We're looking at the 10th chapter of John and have been doing that for some time now. We are finishing our look at it. We're really only going to look at a few words of one verse this morning. Don't get too excited. It'll still take the normal amount of time. We're looking at verse 35 of John chapter 10. And in my translation, which is the New American Standard translation, these words are in parentheses. You see them right in the middle of verse 35 of John chapter 10. These are the words of Jesus, and he says, And the Scripture cannot be broken. The Titanic was thought to be indestructible. In fact, its captain, Captain Edward John Smith, was overheard to say, not even God can destroy the Titanic because it was double-plated in its underbelly. There were 16 watertight compartments, each of which had an apparatus in it. In the event that water entered one, it would have quickly seal off and not let that influence the other 15 compartments and result in the sinking of the ship. But we know what happened on the fourth month of the 1912, on the 14th of the month. That day proved Smith and the world were mistaken about the indestructibility of the Titanic. We must not make the mistake that people make today when they say the Bible is destructible. Because Jesus himself says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Do you understand that all the universe is going to be burned up at the end of time? And that which survives the burn will be the word of God and people who have come to know him through Jesus Christ. I repeat, the scripture is the only indestructible thing in the world. Now, notice the way in which Jesus refers to Scripture. He doesn't pluralize it. I would have thought he would say, the Scriptures cannot be broken. But he doesn't. And that was not a slip of the tongue on the part of Jesus. There was no mistake in it. He was saying what he meant to say. He was saying that the Scripture, which for him at this time, and all followers of Jesus at this time, consisted not of what we call our New Testament, but it was made up of the Old Testament only. The Scripture, the whole body of literature, which is written in Hebrew and translated, thank God, for us into English, that body of literature makes up the Scripture. If one part of it stands, all of it stands. If one part of it does not stand, it's like a house of cards. It all falls. Why is Scripture indestructible? Well, quite simply, it's God's Word. God's the author. The Bible says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God lasts forever. Peter quotes that in his epistle. We know as First Peter. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read how 
all Scripture is inspired by God is the way the New International, excuse me, the New American Standard translates it. But really, the New International and the ESV get it better because this is literally what the words say in the original language. It says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's God-breathed. It's expired, not inspired. It comes from Him. It's God's Word. Therefore, it is indestructible. It's without error. The Bible talks about this in more than one place. In the book of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, the Bible says, Every word of God is flawless. Now, pause with me just a moment. It does not say the word of God is flawless. Look at what it says. Every word of God is flawless. The whole concept of inspiration of Scripture or expiration of Scripture, breathed out by God, is the concept that all the words, even the little words, the words that we think are insignificant, all the words are from the Lord. It's what is called as an inerrant Bible without error because God is its author. Therefore, it cannot be broken. It is infallible. We can trust the Word of God in every way we might think. St. Augustine, who was one of the early church fathers, writing to Jerome, you may remember the name of Jerome as well. Augustine's name is more familiar. But Jerome was tasked with the responsibility of putting the Scriptures in one body of literature and he put them in Latin. It's called the Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate. In writing to Jerome, they corresponded with one another. Jerome recognizing the greatness of this man who had been converted late in life, relatively speaking. And this is what Augustine said to Jerome in his letter. I have learned to hold the Scripture alone to be inerrant. He had it right, didn't he? He understood that the Scripture cannot be broken. He understood the Scripture is God-breathed. He understood that the Scripture is also living. The Scripture itself tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living. That cannot be said of any other book And it's living because it's God-breathed. God uses it to change people's lives. In the first third of the 20th century, there was a project that was sponsored and undertaken by Pelican Publishing House in Great Britain. And among the emphases which was made in this undertaking was that there would be some translations of various documents from ancient history. And one part of that were the Gospels that we have in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You probably know that they were written in Greek originally. So Pelican enlisted a man who was the preeminent Greek scholar of his day, classical Greek at that. His name was Dr. E.V. Rue. Dr. Rule was a scholar at Oxford. When he himself graduated from Oxford in the first decade of the 20th century, he graduated with a first, it was called. It would be the equivalent today if someone graduated from a university in the United States in his or her undergraduate work with summa cum laude, 
all A's. This dude was smart beyond imagination. And after he had finished his work, he and J.B. Phillips, who was an Episcopal priest, Anglican we would say, because he was a part of the Church of England, he himself had taken the task, self-appointed as it were, to give us a translation of the Greek New Testament in modern English as it's described. Some of you have read it. It's a very good paraphrase of the New Testament. Very edifying in your walk with Christ. Well, these two men were invited by the British Broadcasting Company to come on for an interview in the early 50s. It was an audio interview. It was by radio. And they were being interviewed by some moderator. And they began to talk to one another moderated by this individual. And J.B. Phillips turned to Dr. Rue, whom he admired greatly because of his excellence as a Greek scholar, and he understood that Rue was an agnostic. He was not a person who was even sure there was a God, much less trusted Jesus Christ to be the visible expression of the invisible God. He had no relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In the course of this dialogue, J.B. Phillips asked some questions of Dr. Rue, and he said this to him. As you did your translating, did you get the feeling that the whole material is extraordinarily alive? Phillips goes on to say about himself, I got the feeling that the whole thing was alive even when one was translating, even though... I did a dozen versions of a particular passage. It was still living. Did you get that feeling, Dr. Rue? Listen to what he said. I got the deepest feeling that I possibly could have expected. Remember, this man's an agnostic when he starts the project. It, and then he paused, changed me. My work changed me. And when he was speaking about his work, He was talking about an intensive study, these are his own words, of the Greek originals to pass it on to others. I approached these Gospels in the same spirit as I would have approached them had they been presented to me as recently discovered Greek manuscripts. Then he goes on in his response to J.B. Phillips by saying, And I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal, and once more he paused of the Son of Man and God. And they are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. This man was converted. He found the Word of God to be living. He had no inclination toward that, but when he began to interact with the text on what would be considered an objective level, an intellectual level, all of a sudden he realized there was something in his hands that was not ordinary. It was extraordinary beyond his own understanding. Dr. Phillips concludes in reporting this interchange with this great scholar, Dr. Rue, and his conversion. He said, I found it particularly thrilling to hear a man who is a scholar of the first rank as well as a man of wisdom and experience openly admitting that these words written long ago were alive with power. They bore to him, as to me, the ring of truth. The Scripture is not broken because God breathed it. 
into the minds of men and women who recorded it. And it's living as well. Countless attempts throughout history have been made to break the Scripture. You are probably aware of some of them. I'm going to use several illustrations. Going back to the 6th century B.C., perhaps you know the name Jeremiah. A book bears his name. It's the longest book in the Bible. More words in the book of Jeremiah than any other book. He had a sidekick. We might call him his disciple. His name was Baruch. And one day he called Baruch to his chamber. And he said, get a pen, get some writing material, and write down everything which I say. And he dictated the words which we now find in the 36th chapter of Jeremiah. He dictated those words to his amanuensis, his secretary, and he wrote them down. And then he said, now what I want you to do, I want you to go to the temple. And when you get there, I want you to find the dignitaries in the temple. I want you to find the scholars in the temple. I want you to find the religious leaders there. And then what I want you to do, I want you to read every word that I have dictated to you. He said, yes. He went. It took a lot of courage for this young man, Baruch, to do that because he knew there was opposition to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was very unpopular because he spoke the Word of God and confronted Israel in its sin. And especially the king, Jehoiakim, was the king. And so he did exactly as he was told. The people heard them. Some people knew it was the Word of God. Others, it just flew right over their heads and it flew all over them because they knew it was yet another attack upon the nation of Judah and its king, Jehoiakim. So some of the lackeys of Jehoiakim went to the king's palace, got an audience with him, told them what they had just experienced, and he said to his right-hand man, Jehudai, he said, read that to me. Maybe he couldn't read. Maybe it was just the way a king would act. He was above reading something like that. And as he read, there was a little fire burning in the chamber where he was. It was not like a hearth fire. Maybe in your house, if you have a fireplace and you warm yourself by it, it was really kind of like a fire pit that some of you may have outside on your patio or something. And as he listened, he would interrupt the reading. And he said, give me that. And he would hand them the manuscript. It was some sort of papyrus, probably some sort of paper-like substance. And he asked Jehudai, who was his scribe, he said, give me your knife. And then he took the knife. And after he'd read a little bit of it, he would cut it away and throw it into the fire. He did that with each of the readings, each page. He did that with each one. Baruch got word of it. Baruch returned to Jeremiah. Baruch told him what had happened. And to Baruch's surprise, Jeremiah said, sit down, get your pen again, and get some writing material. And what he did, he quoted, quoted it verbatim because in his spirit that had been lodged. God had worked in his spirit by his spirit and inspired him. He was moved by the Holy Spirit. And he gave word for word what he had said just a few hours before. And in addition to that, he added to it. So the Word of God is not simply broken in that case. It also grows in that case as the Spirit of God moves. Go forward four centuries, second century B.C. You may remember that this 
particular passage in John is set during the Festival of Lights, as we call it today, Hanukkah. It was called the festival or the feast of dedication of the altar, which had been profaned in the temple by men named Antiochus Epiphanes. He had gone in, remember? He'd gone in there and he had taken a pig, which was anathema to any Bible-believing Jewish person, and sacrificed the pig on the altar, not to the one true God, but to Zeus, the king of his pantheon of gods. But miraculously, God had delivered them through a family, the Maccabee family, and the son Judas was known as the hammer. He was the leader. And miraculously, he was able to lead these rebellious Jews to a tremendous victory. Come to the temple, restore it. During the time that Antiochus Epiphanes was reigning and really ruling in a horrible way over Israel, for three years it was considered a punishable offense to possess Scripture or to read Scripture. And it was not just any ordinary garden variety offense. It was a capital offense, punishable by execution. But all of a sudden that left. And the Word of God was still intact because of the courage of so many unnamed followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some people, no telling how many people died, maybe were crucified because that was the preferred method of execution by Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's go forward to the 2nd century A.D., a man named Marcion, a so-called Christian, he formed his own little Bible that didn't include all the books that we have in our New Testament. It only included 11 rather than the 27 which make up our New Testament. And he edited it to suit his own thinking. And he tried to persuade others to do the same. It reminds me of the Jefferson Bible. Are any of you familiar with the Jefferson Bible? This, in effect, is what President Jefferson did. What he did was he eliminated all the miraculous elements. He just took a, a pen knife, sort of, and got rid of all that, you know. It shortened the reading, for sure. But it left out the truth about who God is through Jesus Christ. Well, Marcion failed. He's a name that certainly did not go down in history as a name to be honored Two centuries later, Diocletian, you may have heard of the Diocletian persecution. This emperor who took the throne of the Roman Empire in 303 A.D. was the most vicious of all emperors in their pursuit of squashing Christianity. Literally tens of thousands were killed, either by crucifixion or being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and any other, many other numbers of means of Execution. He was succeeded by a man named Constantine. You may remember his name. At the Milvian Bridge, 312 A.D., he was facing off against someone who was trying to defeat him and take the throne from him. The night before that moment, it was in October of 312, the night before he had a vision from the Lord so-called. And in the vision, the Lord said, tomorrow I will give you the victory. He was a pagan. He was not a follower of Christ. 
And so what he ordered all of his centurions to do is to tell all your men to write these Greek letters, Cairo. Chi and Rho are the first two letters of Christos, from which our word Christ comes. And they went into battle with that on their shield. When they got to the Milvian field, it was a wide open plains area, a place that was ideal for two armies to face off with each other. When they got there, the sun had just begun to rise, but there were clouds on the horizon. They were thick clouds. You could see the rays of the sun coming above until finally it reached almost the top of that cloud bank. And when it did, there was a sign of the cross. And he heard these words in this sign, conquer. And so the story goes, he was converted and you know, He won the victory and he immediately declared everybody who is a Roman citizen and everybody under the authority of Rome is a Christian. He just announced it. That was not a good thing. But when he took full control of the Roman Empire, he asked his first question after that victory was, where is a copy of the Christian scriptures? He asked and nobody had one. You see, Diocletian, in his persecution of the church of Jesus Christ, did everything within his power to wipe out the Scripture. But the Scripture could not be broken. It endured as Diocletian went away. Go forward a thousand years. We're moving more rapidly now. John Wycliffe, he was a priest in England. And he had a heart for getting the Word of God into the common knowledge and common language of the people. And so his goal was, he was a scholar. He was actually a master, which means a teacher, in Balliol College in Oxford, the same school that Dr. Rue went to some 600 years later. But nevertheless, he translated the Scriptures, into the language of the people from Jerome's Vulgate and gave them a copy of Scripture that they could read. Soon after the completion of this translation of both Testaments, he passed away. There was a conference which was convened by the Archbishop Arundel at Oxford in 1408 and he forbade the reading of Wycliffe's translation. He didn't want the Word of God to get into the hands of others than the clergy. A man who was influenced by Wycliffe, not directly but indirectly, just a few years later, also in the early part to mid part of the 15th century, was a Czech man, a Bohemian. His name was John Huss. He had become acquainted with the writings of Wycliffe. And he wrote a piece that contained many of Wycliffe's ideas. It was called De Ecclesia, which means about the church or of the church. And among the things that he really advocated for was the translation of Scripture into the language of the common person to get the Word of God into people's hands. And especially, and this was beyond your imagination, to know how this did not resonate well with the established clergy. That it would be for the layman. And the teaching of Huss was definitely a precursor of the great reformers in the 15th and 16th century. 
But this man was a reformer himself. And he went to his death for it. He was arrested. He was told, if you recant, you will not be executed. He said, I can't recant. He was taken to the place of execution. As those who were eyewitnesses described it, he fell to his knees as he was getting ready to be burned at the stake. And he lifted his hands toward heaven and his face toward heaven. And he began to thank the Lord, praise the Lord. Then his captors bound his hands with thick rope. Then they took a chain and tied him to the stake where he was going to be burned. And tied his body to that stake. There was a lot of combustible material, primarily straw and some dry wood, that was placed around his body all the way up to his neck. And so those eyewitnesses say there was almost a futile attempt on the part of several people to set that ablaze until one lady came up and placed it. And then the flames went up and he soon died. His last words was, were, O oh Christ, have mercy on all of us. He did not do what probably I would do. I would want to curse them. You know what I mean? If they're killing you. But he had the Spirit of Jesus in him. In the 16th century, William Tyndale was influenced by Erasmus. And Erasmus was not a Christian, interestingly. He was a humanist. He was a great intellectual. And among those things he set out to do was to translate the New Testament from the Greek, that's the language of the New Testament, into the common knowledge, the common language of the people. But he was not doing that. But he just wanted to give those who wanted to do that a manuscript of the Greek New Testament to work from. And Tyndale was a scholar himself in Greek, and he translated it. He was run out of England because he was translating the Bible into the common language of the people. It was his stated purpose. Listen, I want a version a plowboy can read and understand. Praise God for that. That we have had men like these people whom I have mentioned who have been willing to go to death in order that we could have the Scriptures, which cannot be broken, available to us. The Holy Spirit, God breathed them and gave them to us so we could know the Gospel of Jesus. In 1526, he finished his work. It was published in an underground way and sent over to England. In 1535, this man, William Tyndale, who had taken up residence in Germany to finish the translation of the New Testament, and then he taught himself Hebrew so he could translate the Old Testament. He finished that before he was arrested in 1535. He was executed the next year by strangling and burning at the stake. Does it sound familiar? Martin Luther... His contemporary went into hiding in 1522 and he translated the New Testament into German. And until late last century, it was the standard work in German. Luther was a brilliant man. He was brilliant with languages, Greek, Hebrew. 
of course, his own native tongue. Between 1522 and 1533, there were 85 editions of this New Testament which were put into circulation. That's a lot of printing considering the primitive nature of automated printing in that day. Now, let's go to the late 18th century. Voltaire, who was a deist, which means he was really not much of anything in terms of his belief, but he was a critic of Christianity and of Jesus. Listen to what he said, this Frenchman, about the Bible. A hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that's looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. I'm one of those, okay? (laughs) I'm not curious. I know that my very life Depends on the Word of God. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then, when asked about Christ, this is what Voltaire said, curse the wretch. In 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand, writing is what he was thinking of, will destroy the edifice it took apostles, all twelve of them, to raise. When it came for him to die, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. His physician was the only one attending him, and this is what his physician reported that he said as he was dying. He said, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half my worth for six more months of life. And then I will go to hell and take you with me. And his last words were, O Christ, O Jesus Christ. This man who had made a life out of condemning Christ, condemning the Word of God, he could not debunk the Scripture because the Scripture can't be broken, can it? It's God's Word. It's powerful. It's living and active. Higher critics, they are so-called, scholars they are so-called, have done their best over the last two and a half centuries to make people like us reject the Bible by pointing all kinds of errors. And their scholarship is very weak. If you look at that scholarship, now please understand, We should never be anti-intellectual when I'm using the word intellectual in the best way it could be used. We're not opposed to education, are we? By all means, we need to get educated. But we need to learn to look at all education and all of life through the lens of Scripture, not the other way around. We're not in judgment of the Bible. The Bible is that which God has given to us to reveal Himself to us, but also to fix us up so we'll be able to see any and every situation in which we find ourselves from His perspective and be able to deal wisely and properly with those situations. So, what we know is that there have been many attempts for millennia now to break the Word of God. But as Paul, as a prisoner, said in his writing in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, he was in chains, but he says, but 
the Word of God is not chained. It's living and active. So the Word of God is indestructible. The Word of God also is instructional. Go to 2 Timothy now. This great passage of Scripture. The Bible says in 2 Timothy that verse 16, all Scripture is inspired for God and is profitable for teaching. It's for instruction, isn't it? Aspects of teaching are reproof. That means getting in somebody's face in a polite way, if you can do that, and tell them the truth. Correction, if you're wrong, you need correcting. Training in righteousness, yes. It's for instruction, isn't it? It's for the instruction of the person who's seeking to know God. There's probably more than one person here this morning who is seeking to know God. Well, do you know how you'll find God? He'll find you, really, but from your perspective, the way you will find God is the way everyone finds God. It's through the Word of God. Because Scripture, and he uses the identical word that Jesus uses here over in John 6.35 where he says the Scripture is not or cannot be broken when he says all Scripture is inspired by God. To the seeker. St. Augustine, perhaps you know his story of conversion. He was a wild man. We would call him a hellraiser. He was a playboy in the 4th century. His pastime was bedding down women. He had a child, at least one that we know of, and he took that child to raise a child. Adiotus was his name. His mother, Monica, I'm talking about Augustine's mother, who was a saint, a godly woman, helped him with the raising of this child. He was in Milan where he was living. He was studying rhetoric under the great Ambrose, who was a priest in the Catholic Church. And he was disturbed deeply about his life. He was in his late 30s. He was walking in the garden which was outside of his house. There was a wall which separated his property from the next door neighbors. And he was walking and he heard a child's voice say, Take and read. It was in Latin, but take and read. And he sensed, this is God speaking to me. And as he looked down on a bench in the garden, he saw a copy of the Scriptures there. One wonders how it got there. Probably his mother had been there reading the Word of God, communing with God. But when he picked it up, it was in the 13th chapter of the book of Romans. And of all verses, it's kind of an odd verse. I've never heard, except in this case, God using this verse of Scripture to save somebody. But it happened in his case. And it says, make no provision for the flesh. That had been his life. That's all he lived for, to make provision for the flesh. And put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was converted that day by the Word of God. Martin Luther. He was a professor of all things theology. He was a scholar. He was a Greek scholar. I've already mentioned it. And a Hebrew scholar. He was teaching a group of Augustinian monks how to be good theologians as they carried out their responsibility to teach the truth of God. And he was preparing to teach from the book of Romans. He came to Romans 1, 17, and this is a quotation from the Old Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. That's all he read. And all of a sudden, it was 
electrifying for him. The Word of God is living, remember? And he received Christ that day. He was born again. How? By the living and abiding Word of God. That's how. John Wesley, same thing. From the book of Galatians, really it was a preface of a commentary by Martin Luther. You know, Wesley is the founder, in effect, of all the Methodist churches in the Wesleyan communities. Perhaps you know the name Lew Wallace. Lew Wallace wrote Ben-Hur. How many of you have either read the book or seen the movie? Maybe you've seen three versions of it. I've seen three versions of it. The silent one and the, the one that Charlton Heston's in and the more recent one. But he was a general in the Union Army during the Civil War. After the war was over, he got the assignment to be the governor of New Mexico Territory. He came to the governor's house in Santa Fe, and in his spare time, he wrote Ben-Hur. He had to do some research. He went to the original sources because he was wanting to include Christ in this story. Ben-Hur, Judah Ben-Hur, was a fictional character, of course, but he wanted to get the flavor of the time in which Ben-Hur lived. And he began to read the Gospels, and he was an agnostic. And guess what happened? Hey, it's dangerous. Don't read the Bible if you want to get, don't want to get saved. You'll be born again by the living and abiding where it's awesome, let me tell you. So, the Scripture is instructional for salvation. Look at verse 15. As Paul writes to Timothy, from childhood, it's the word for infancy, you have known the sacred Scriptures which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Do you know who he heard the Scripture from in infancy? His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Look, if you're a mother or grandmother, you have the great privilege of introducing your children and grandchildren to Jesus Christ. It's never too early to begin. Never. Even when they're in the womb, start reading Scripture. Babies can pick up things. I don't understand that, but go ahead and do it. But we know that this man, Timothy, came to Christ through the Scriptures. Isn't that what the text teaches us? It's certainly true. Remembering that everybody who is born from above or born again comes to that place through the Scripture. It's also instructional to those of us who are in Christ. Those of us who have been saved by the work of Christ. Look again at verse 16. It's worth reading again. All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable. I like the NIV translation, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man or woman of God may be fully equipped, prepared for every good work. Do you ever wonder what God wants you to do? Are you ever at at loggerheads with what God wants you to do? Here's how you figure it out. Read your Bible. That's all. Read the Bible and do what it says. That's how you know what God wants you to do. It's not rocket science. It takes some self-discipline and hunger for the Word of God. Read your Bible. Let's look again. At verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned. 
and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. We've already determined the source of his teaching. His grandmother, his mother, and then Paul came along and reinforced and added to what they had already taught him. But I love this part. Continue in the things you have learned. Hopefully you understand that you will never outgrow growing in your walk with the Lord. That's why we read the Bible regularly. Every day. Because we need the nourishment and the direction that only can be received from reading the Word of God. So, the Word of God is for us who know the Lord. The Bible says, Jesus actually says in John 17, 17, He's praying to the Father and He says, Sanctify them by Your truth, Father. Your Word is truth. What sanctify mean? It's to be set apart for God's use so that you can be prepared for every good work. So this is what we need to understand. The Scripture, all of it, And here again, remember, when Paul writes the word Scripture here, he's talking about the Old Testament. Most believers in Christ, they stick to the New Testament. Probably if I were to ask a show of hands of those of you who know Jesus, how many of you have read all of the Old Testament? And you were honest? I'm not going to ask you. And I'm not scolding you. It's important to know that that's part of the whole body of work we know as the Scripture. And to leave that out of our repertoire of reading is to miss something incredibly invaluable. So what shall we do with the Scripture? What shall you and I do? A good answer to that question is found in Isaiah 34:16. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. I had not written what I'm going to read down when I read that verse probably three weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. It struck me as something that I really need to ponder and think about. So I just wrote these down, not thinking I would be sharing it with anybody. Seek is not a casual word, but one which is pregnant with intensity. You might even say that seek is a word which conveys a sense of desperation. I can think of no word which is more fitting to describe the proper attitude toward the book of the Lord. After all, the book of the Lord is the Word of God. It is the Word of life. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. Are you ever like a person in a fog wondering what you need to do about any number of things in your life? Well, the answer should be found in the Word of God. Go to the Bible. You say, I don't understand the Bible. Well, there's a surefire way you can begin to understand it. Ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, come into your life, not just be a sometime Savior, but an all-time Lord. And you will understand the Bible. It'll be like a light switch goes on. We have many who can testify to that here today. Notice what that verse from Isaiah 34 does not say. It does not say, seek the Lord and read from books about the book of the Lord. It says, read the book of the Lord. My third and final reference to St. Augustine, this great man of God. In the preface to one of his many works on theology, his treatise on the Trinity, this is what he writes. Do not follow my writings as holy scripture. 
When you find in Holy Scripture anything that you did not believe before, believe it without doubt. But in my writings, you should hold nothing for certain. I believe most firmly that no one of those authors has erred in any respect in writing. I read a lot of books, but you know the older I've gotten, the less interested I am in books about the Bible and the more interested I am in the Bible. And the reason is, there's no substitute when you really feed on God's Word. Nothing else will satisfy you. It's like eating cotton candy when you read something other than the Bible. And we need to be men and women who believe that God wants to speak to us by His Spirit through His Word so we can know Him and grow in Him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the Bible. Forgive us for being nonchalant about it. Take it or leave it about it. Help us to be men and women who have this intense desire to seek the book of the law, Lord, and live in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.